0: Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be encouraged and empowered by this week's message, and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester, or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr, or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. so much. Um, I just want to second what Josh said, a very warm welcome to those of you who are new to Ram Church. Um, it means the world to me that you choose to spend your Sunday morning here with us. I would love to hear your story, what brought you here today. Um, wherever you're at in your faith journey, maybe maybe uh, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you don't even just believe in the whole faith thing. Wherever you're at, um, this is what this room is about, is about Um, orienting our heart towards the possibility of the reality of God and then experiencing that reality. So I want to invite you into that story. Thanks, George, for this water right here. Um, Before I get into my message, I want to just share a couple things that are coming in the life of Ramp Church. This is our last teaching in the single, dating, married teaching chapter. So this is the last Sunday. Who's enjoyed this chapter? Uh, it's been amazing, hasn't it? So if you missed any any part of that, um, it's all available on demand. Um, whatever your favorite podcast channel is, it's available there. And then on YouTube, of course, as well, you can go back and watch all of those, which means not only is this the end of that chapter, but we're starting a brand new chapter next week. I'm really excited about this chapter. It is called The Process of Prophetic Fulfillment. The Process of Prophetic Fulfillment. See, sometimes coming to church, it's it's kind of, we try to create a balanced diet. So we're moving from single dating married to prophetic fulfillment. And so, what is this chapter about? This is a teaching chapter. It's going to last three weeks, um, and it is—if you've ever wondered, what is God's will for my life, and what's my part in that picture—that's what we're going to be diving into. We're going to be looking at the book of Ezra, and we're going to be exploring through that book. How does how when God says and has intention, and He reveals that prophetically—that's what that word prophetic means—then then how does my part in that? And what does it look like to be involved in this beautiful prophetic storyline that God's writing through my life, personally, individually, and how do I think about those circumstances, and then what is God doing in the future? Anybody up for that journey? So each week, because we are looking at the book of Ezra, each week um, there's gonna be some readings that are optional, but I would recommend them leading up to that message. And so to get you prepared for next week, here are the readings. So maybe break out that smartphone take some photos of these readings. Jeremiah 29, Daniel 9, and Ezra 1. So Pastor Michael Wood is gonna be um, teaching next week. So I really wanna encourage you, dive into those passages to be ready for our new new teaching chapter. So, like has been mentioned a couple times and we've mentioned it every Sunday morning for the past month to make sure you're prepared. We're talking about uh, God and sexuality today. So if you maybe missed that announcement a little while ago, maybe you're new to Ramp Church and you have a young person in the room that you're like, ah, I don't know if I want them in this. Um, we, have a, we have a young um, a youth home group that's meeting literally right now, not a home group, a youth group that's meeting in, in the back right now. So um, we have somebody at the back if, if you wanna just send them out there. But I will say, I've reviewed the policies um, that our schools are teaching um, our young people. I've sat down with an assistant head teacher to discuss what are they teaching. So I'm, I'm really up to date on what schools, and besides that, I have three kids in secondary school. So I'm super up to date on kind of what is, what is relevant. My kids are in for this session. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, somebody's gonna define this topic. So I think it's a great topic for us to talk about. Um, I'm also, these are just the preliminaries, I'm also aware that in this series we're hitting some pain points. Has anybody hit some of those pain points along along the way? Um, You are an incredible community, Ramp Church, and your boldness and courage to discuss these topics has amazed me. Last week, for example, we talked about domestic abuse. Um, About six weeks ago, we talked about singleness and so there's a lot, of, a lot of things that really hit home. This is not just um, a, 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 an objective teaching. This is personal for all of us. So why do we have the bravery to kind of come into these topics? Why do we address topics that are potentially triggering or uh, remind us of past pain? And it's, it is because Jesus leans into these topics. I love uh, several Psalms, Psalms fifty-one, seventeen, says, "'A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise.'" Sometimes we live in a culture that despises brokenness. So one of the reasons we have to act like we're all together is because, is because there's this sense of feeling bad about being broken. And so if anything, the house of God, the people of God should be a place where we're honest about our brokenness. And one of the things that gives us courage to be honest about our brokenness is that we're not just a physical, natural community, but this is a spiritual community empowered by the Spirit of God that meets us at our honesty and wants to lead us into life and wholeness. So we're not just utilizing our own tools to help, solves, to help solve the problems that we're getting honest about. But we're getting to work with the, with the tools of the Holy Spirit. And not only is it the abstract posture of God, but it's the very literal posture of Jesus towards you today. And I'm reminded of the story of the woman caught in adultery. Such a beautiful story. And her accusers, religious leaders at that time, brought her before Jesus They literally caught her in the act, and they drag her before Jesus. We don't really know how she was dressed, but if they caught her in the act, we can imagine. And they bring her to Jesus in a public place, and the first thing Jesus does is send her accusers away, send everybody away, and gets alone with her. And I love love that from the angle of sending her accusers away, but the other for the sake of this message, what I love about it is he's creating space to bring clarity, to bring healing. And what I want us to do, even before I start this message today, is I want us to recognize that the Holy Spirit, I know we're in a room full of hundreds of people, but the Holy Spirit can actually create space in your own heart and mind, get on your level to... To, to create a safe place for you to get honest about what's going on. So can I pray over us just in the spirit, the spirit of the Lord. Um, Father, I just thank you for your heart towards us. We're in awe of who you are, we're in awe of this man Jesus and his heart for the people of God that's postured towards our healing and our wholeness. I pray that we can see you today in a fresh way and that as we see you We can see the ability to be led into life and that gives us the freedom, the courage to be honest about where we really are. Um, I pray for genuine freedom today in all of our lives, clarity of mind, clarity of heart, Um, in the precious name of Jesus, amen, amen. So I am um, talking about, the title of my message is Your New Vision for Sexuality. My desire is that today you leave with a fresh vision for sexuality, and um, and so I know that's that's a big that's a big claim. <laughs> it's a huge goal for today, but I hope that we can get there. Um, so the first question I want to ask is, what's actually going on? What's actually going on in the world? This is a huge topic right now, and there has been there are innumerable publications discussing where we're at in sexuality um, in our world. I took a sociology course a, a few summers ago just, just at a secular university just to stay up to date with some of the dynamics of the, of the way this is unfolding specifically in the world of sexuality. And um, I, I love there are five shifts that, that um, I want to summarize some of what's happened in our world just since the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s um, and I want, to, I want to, to pull those into five summarizing ways. The first one is that sex has been disconnected from childbirth and family. And this is mainly a technological advancement with the advancement of contraception. And do you, you realize all of human history before that, that was not even a possibility? So that's changed the landscape. Um, it means it's reframed sex as primarily pleasure instead of family building. Um, so the first thing is, sex has been disconnected from childbirth and family. That's that's a modern creation. Number two, sex has been disconnected from marriage. That's also. It's not that people have only people throughout history have only had sex in marriage. It's just socially, that is a more modern reality. That that the norm for the sexual experience is not inside of marriage, and that's led to that's led to anxiety in culture because the context has now been removed which means you have to recontextualize this. Number three, sex has been disconnected from male and female relationships. It's only recent that gay marriage has been legalized, and I'm talking in the scope of human history. Number four, sex has been disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment. So not only has sex been disconnected from marriage as a context, but in many ways, it's been disconnected from relationship altogether. Sex used to be the final step in a process of meeting, building a friendship, starting a serious relationship, considering marriage, and then somewhere along that path, but that has actually been reversed in society. So now sex is often the first exchange, and then we go, well, how did that get along? Maybe we want to get to know one another. Maybe we want to form a friendship. Maybe there's something long-term in this. So that whole, that whole path has been reversed. This of course is birth hookup culture. Um, Justin Garcia, research scientist at Indiana, um, at Indiana U- University, he says this, we're in unchartered territory. He says there have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating, listen to this, in the last four million years. The first was around 10 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory and more settled leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is with the rise of the internet. So if you're a bit confused about sexual relationships, that's cuz this is only the second time this has happened in 4 million years. We're in a revolution and that's caused sociologically, it's like a meteorite. We're traveling faster than we can get acclimated, even with the, the changes around us. And the changes are so intense and so personal that, that now, then we try to legalize things. So we try to bring them even into the way we govern societies, but we've, we've barely figured out the bearings on where this new place we're living is. That's how quick, that's how drastic this is. Nancy Piercy notes that this same view of sexuality, it's, it's even being brought to young children. A video put, uh, 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 Piercy says, a video put out by children's television workshop, widely used in sex education classes, this is how it defines sexual relations, as simply, quote, something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. So there's no mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. There's no hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. So sex has been disconnected, not just from marriage, but from love, emotion, and relational commitment. And then, this is where we've begun, but we're moving, we're moving more towards this, is sex has been disconnected from people altogether. There's technological advances, and other nation, many nations are starting to even advance robots. Of course, pornography is, is the indication, or excuse me, the initiation of many of these depersonalized forms of interacting with sex. But this just isn't like a Western culture as a whole or um, national level problem. Uh, just this week, the Mill newspaper in Manchester published an article about ongoing school protests in Rusholm, in Longsight. Have you seen those? About the primary school, there's, there's parents literally picketing out in front of the school because of because of their, um, how uncomfortable they are with the exposure that primary school kids are getting to sexual topics. So this is literally in our city. And of course, the church hasn't always been helpful on this topic, have we? Can we get honest? Um, Philip Yancey identifies this. He says, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations, issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. But Ronald Rollheiser, he gives a little more holistic approach on that it's not actually just the church. He says this, the church has always struggled with sex but so is everyone else. There aren't any cultures, religious or secular, pre-modern or modern, post-modern or post-religious, that exhibit a truly healthy sexual ethos. Every church and every culture struggles with integrating sexual energy, if not in its creed about sex, at least in the living out of that creed. Sexual culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic, Partly, this is true, but the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it's one of the few voices still remaining who are challenging anyone towards sexual responsibility. As well, the church might also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. Everyone is struggling. Can we all agree on that point? Is that fair? Now, of course, you're in a church, and I'm about to open the Bible, so I, although Rollheiser leaves that a little bleak, I do feel like there's some hope for us today. But I do wanna recognize, um, if you are a non-believer in the room, maybe someone drugged you here, <laughs> maybe you heard about the topic and you just got interested, this teaching today is for Christians. This is for the people of God. Um, I don't feel any responsibility to tell the world outside these walls how to live. Um, uh, Christian living has a context, and that context is following Jesus. And he is much more interested in who you're becoming than any other priority. And that is, that's where we start. God has a priority for you today, and it's about who you're becoming. He has a priority to you, for you today and it's about leading you to what's most important in life. God has a priority for you today and it's about empowering you to make a difference in the world around you. But it's fair, um, if you are an unbeliever, then, then today you're gonna learn something, hopefully, about what Christians believe. But it's fair for everybody, believer and non-believer alike, to ask this question of yourself. What has formed me sexually? Where have my ideas about this part of my life been created? For all of us, that's, a, that's various ways. And we may think we're, we're, we're wholly objective in our approach to this or, or, or academic. But what I've found in, in walking with people over 20 years in pastoral ministry is that these, these topics are much more experiential and emotional than sometimes we like to admit. And what I want us to do today, what I want to invite you to do today is come to the Holy Spirit with an openness that first of all is to say, I know, I recognize I've been formed. Help me to deform in the ways that are destructive and then reform in a way that leads me to life. So I wanna wanna open up our teaching text today. It is 1 Corinthians chapter number six. 1 Corinthians chapter number six. We're gonna read verses 12 through 20. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. He's a church leader. And this is a really neat passage. And you'll notice before I read the passage that some of the phrases have quotation marks. Around them. And that's not quoting Paul, that's Paul quoting them. So he would it would be like him preaching to them and going, Well, here's what you say. You know, you guys are always saying this, da-da-da-da. Well, here's my response. And so this happens actually several times throughout First Corinthians. Is that it's this very obvious dialogue, and it shows Paul's like, Paul's not just writing to you and I, right? There's this intimate connection between him and his people that he is very in tune with with what they think, what they believe, what they're saying, and he's responding to it. So verse 12 starts, notice the quotation marks. This is what they're saying. Everything is permissible for me. And Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. See him, he's shifting them to a different level of importance. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them, Paul says. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. There is so much in this passage. We could literally speak for six weeks on the the different things Paul even alludes to. Uh, Just to hit a few, first of all, Paul is simultaneously showing that we have desires in our body. But he's also showing that our bodies have a connection to God. And in that connection, can I just say something? Um, This is not in my notes, I just want to like, I'm just amazed at this idea today. So I just wanna give it to you. But Paul is showing our connection with God. Do you know that you are more like God than you are more like animals? This is part part of the story of Genesis one and two. That God created humans in his likeness, in his image and likeness. There's, of course, a similarity. We're mammals, okay, so so there's a categorical similarity. But the Spirit of God in you has created a oneness between you and God that makes you more like him than them. And that leads me perfectly into my first point from this text. One of the main things we can read from this text that Paul sees in his culture 2,000 years ago, but it is everywhere in our culture, and Paul is directly addressing it, and it is this belief that sex primarily is appetite. Paul compares it to our perspective on food. That we have a perspective that minimizes sex to the same level as food. And you'll see this in our culture. Well, I mean, I want food, I eat. I want sex, so I sleep with somebody. It's an appetite, it's that simple. It's the first cultural perspective that Paul addresses. It's actually a natural, logical conclusion from a naturalistic worldview. Maybe today you you have a naturalistic worldview. You believe that the only thing that exists are things you can see and touch and count and measure and weigh and study and scientific evolution brought us here. The natural byproduct of that idea is that these desires on the inside of us, they're just appetites. And if they're appetites, like the evolutionary process, we should say yes to them. They lead us toward greater fulfillment in life. Richard Dawkins himself, of course, the great evolutionary biologist, he was confronted about this reality in an interview because he has a monogamous relationship with his wife. And they said, well, how does the fact that you're married to one person and you have sex with one person, how does that fit with your evolutionary philosophy? And he said, it doesn't. It's just a personal choice. This is actually, there's an incongruence between my philosophy on life and the way I'm choosing to live. So he even admitted, if we just have an evolutionary philosophy on the way we live life, the natural conclusion is that we shouldn't be married. We should just have sex anytime we want with whoever we want. Because sex is simply a natural appetite. This, This is everywhere. And to be honest, I understand the appeal. It's quite pragmatic. You just look at sex as a bodily function, a biological need. I need to satisfy it. The problem with this is that it moves sex from a connective, fruitful, loving activity and it makes it a commodity. Something to be consumed to gratify my own cravings. Do you remember the old film A Beautiful Mind? So Beautiful Mind, um, the main character in Beautiful Mind was John Nash. Russell Crowe played John Nash. Okay, and he was a brilliant mathematician, but he was also asocial. So he had very challenged in, um, in his social engagement. There's a scene where he approaches a woman he found beautiful at a bar, and he says this, I don't exactly know what I'm required to say in order to have intercourse with you, but could we assume that I said all that? I mean, essentially, we're talking about fluid exchange, right? So could we just cut straight to the sex? Something in us, ooh, feel, that's wrong to us, isn't it? Something hit, what is that thing in Because we know it's more than just appetite. Why does that feel wrong? It's kicking against this cultural idea that sex is just appetite. The sex is appetite perspective turns our bodies into commodities, things to be consumed. This is where friends with benefits come about. This is where we cultivate fetishes. This is what keeps the world of pornography moving forward, our acceptance even as a society. Do you know studies are showing among young people, even even compared to my generation, that sexual activity among young people is 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 lessening, percentage-wise. Youth are having sex less than they did in my generation. And in case you're tempted to think that is because everybody is becoming more moral, it's just because sexual gratification is found in other places. Specifically, pornography. This is one of the reasons, also there's a strong correlation in studies between the marriage rate dropping and the consumption of pornography. And this is partly because Because people are finding sexual relationships deeply unsatisfying because they're comparing them to their fantasies that they've developed in in pornography. There's many problems with this. We could, could, and and at some point we probably should, teach a whole whole message on this. But even in our brains, the way we're wired, the, 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 um, the violence part of our mind is very closely related to the sexual part of our mind. So as, as, as you continue to consume pornography, just like a drug addiction, the same type of sensation no longer fires the same, the same chemicals in your mind. So you have to go to more and more intense types of pornography. And then that is, then moves, of course, into violent acts that, that, that we then become exposed to. But that part of our brain is just like a drug addiction. Dr. Simon, I can't pronounce your your last name, excuse me, Dr. Simon, um, from University of Montreal made this comment on his research. He He was looking at the objective of, this is what he said, the objective of my work is to observe the impact of pornography on the sexuality of men and how it shapes their perception of men and women. It's an incredible area of research. We started our research seeking men in their 20s who had never consumed pornography, but we couldn't find any. This stance comes from a minimizing of sex. to the point that it becomes something to be bought and sold, traded, like a commodity. But what if sex is more than appetite? What if it's greater than just an urge? What if it's greater than just something I'm meant to satisfy? What if it isn't, as I've heard people say before, lighten up, it's just sex. No one's hurt by a little sex to which I respond, I don't know anybody who isn't hurt by sex. This stance acknowledges the pleasure, maybe on its best day, the beauty of sex, but it denies its power. We're going to talk about the biblical perspective here in a minute, but I think sex's appetite is one of the primary views of our culture. The next one is this. It's not sex as appetite. It 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 doesn't it doesn't minimize sex. It ultimizes sex. So if sex is not appetite, then often sex is God. I don't mean like a spiritual being in the sky playing a harp, hoping that people you know live up there in heaven with him. I mean, it is the subject of our love and affections, desires and pursuits, identity and hope service, and sacrifice. It is what Soren Kierkegaard describes sin as, is when we make good things into ultimate things. When sex is God, it determines things about your life that it was never meant to determine. Do you realize this is one of the primary struggles that Christianity has with a lot of the sexual freedom movement? It isn't that we don't wanna be welcoming communities. I am so grateful that our city is a welcoming city. I'm, I'm like so grateful for that. I love that. I, my church is a welcoming, if, if you want to come to the table of the Lord, anybody is welcome in this place. I, I, I think we all, should, we all should come around the table of the Lord to ask whatever questions we have about whatever part of our lives. But the reason we come to different conclusions is because we have different gods. Let me say it like this, I'll just say it very directly. Whoever determines your identity is your God. The only thing that can determine my worth and ultimate value, the way I understand myself, my place in the world, what makes me ultimately worthwhile and valuable in the world, that thing is my ultimate value. That is my God, that is the thing I worship. You don't have to come into church and write songs about it and lift your hands, right? Those are practices that we develop around the thing we worship. But our God is not determined by the thing we sing songs to, although there are plenty of songs sung to the God of sex. How do you know that you're in this? Well, often we actually define beauty based on sexual desirability. As a society, we sacrifice and spend millions on sexual appeal. Actually, if I was to say to you, get someone in your mind who you think is beautiful, there are probably going to be things about them that are just sexually appealing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sex. We're gonna get onto that in a bit. What I'm saying is, it's the very definition of the way we we define beauty. It's the way we define our own beauty. To the point that, we have whole cosmetic industries, millions and millions and millions of pounds based around keeping people looking young. <laughs> to the point that they don't even look natural, right? And hey, if that's you, I'm, go for it. I'm not, I'm, nothing against, I'm not saying anything against that. What I'm saying is, what's fueling an industry of that? What's fu- fueling an industry of that is that that is the most sexually desirable charged age, and we're trying to pull people back to that because that's the definition of beauty. What is that? That is the God, that's the spirit of the age, that's the the God of sex who is determining how we live our lives. Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, he writes this, there's never been a society that's put so much emphasis on finding your one true love. We secular people still need to know that our life matters in the grand scheme of things. Why is is Becker making that point? Because when you take away God, you don't just take away some guy in the sky who determines who goes to heaven and hell. You take away meaning itself. You take away purpose itself. So Becker is recognizing this dynamic. And he's saying, we secular people, so we people who have taken God out of the equation, we still need to know that our life matters in the grand scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher meaning and trust and gratitude. But if we no longer have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that human beings need in our innermost being, we now look to, not to God, but in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feelings and nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence has not been in vain. We want Redemption, nothing less, Becker says. But what if sex wasn't your source of meaning, beauty, and identity? What if it wasn't your God? I wanna talk about one more cultural shaping idea and then we're gonna get to God's vision. And this is one that's been in the church. So I'm gonna pick on us for a minute. And it's this, sex is dirty. Sex is bad. Many of you grew up in that narrative. Maybe you grew up in, in, um, in a church culture where, where that was never even talked about. It was not a topic. Maybe you didn't, Maybe you didn't come to a church where a Sunday morning was kind of given to that idea. Maybe your family never discussed it. Or maybe every time it was discussed, it was in a prohibitive manner. It was in a negative perspective. And I understand why that's happened. It's caused so much pain and there is so much perversion around the idea. That, that sometimes we go overboard. But the problem with this is that sexual pleasure was created by God. I mean, God created pleasure points on your body. I'm not suggesting you use this in evangelistic outreach, but <laughs> hey, if it works, do you want to meet the God who created an orgasm? I mean... I'm not suggesting that. My point is this God created that. And even the fact that we're uncomfortable with that thought, I mean, all of us are like, oh my, oh, whoa. He just said the O word in church? <laughs> there's a whole book in our Bible that's dedicated to this. It's Song of Solomon. So there's different perspectives depending on your generation. Uh, 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 um, That's uh, that's generally the divide, depending on our generation, how comfortable we are with these topics. But God was comfortable enough that he included an entire book of the Bible on this. So sex is not dirty. Sex is a gift from God. Sexual pleasure was created by God. And so just because sex isn't only appetite minimized it, and just because we don't ultimize it into the place of God does not mean that then we then react and make it dirty. So what is the vision for sex? I'm glad you asked because that's gonna be the rest of this message. I'm glad you asked. I wanna talk about four, four things that your I hope your new vision of sexuality includes. And the first one is this. The sexual vision The the biblical vision of sex, first of all, views sex as powerful and therefore formative. It's powerful and therefore formative. Sex changes us. It forms us. It's an act. It's an experience. And as such, it shapes us. It's not neutral or benign or casual. It's not fleeting. By nature, it molds us, it moves us. This is one of the things that Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 6. Your personhood is connected to your your sexual encounters. That's what he's trying to get at with all that. There's more he's getting at, but that's one of the things he's getting at. Your personhood is shaped, It's, it's not powerless, it's not simply an appetite, it doesn't determine your identity but it's not simply an appetite. I love Anthony Thistleton's commentary on 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. Far from devaluing sex, Paul here is doing the very opposite. Paul was far ahead of first century cultural assumptions in perceiving the sexual act as one of self-commitment, which deeply involves the entire person. Not merely body parts. Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the one to whom you belong. It's formative in nature. F.F. Bruce says about 1 Corinthians 6, Paul displays a psychological insight into sexuality which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. He insists that it's an act by by its very nature, engages the entire person in a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. It's formative. Tim Keller says this on 1 Corinthians 6. God did not invent sex simply to be a defiling, but necessary mode of procreation. And he's going beyond that. God did not even just make sex a way of self-gratification or even self-expression. Paul says sex was designed as a way to do radical self-donation. Sex was God's invented way for you to give yourself to someone so deeply that it results in personal transformation and completion. Isn't this wild? Some of this language new for you? Some of this is new for us because we, first of all, we haven't thought of sex on these terms. Second of all, we didn't think of it in a a, a Christian or a biblical sense in these terms. And the reason is is because we've been shaped by something else. Our perspectives have been shaped by something else. But what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to get us thoroughly centered in a biblical perspective. And there's something deeply formative about your sexual activity. And this, which means this is relevant whether you're married, single, divorced, young, old, but the way you cultivate your sexual imagination and your sexual behaviors shapes who you are as a person. God is not just interested in little sexually clean robots walking around on planet Earth going, hey, look at all those people that just act right just marching along, all sexually pure. When the world sees them, they're gonna wanna come to church. (laughs) No, he knows that human flourishing is only connected to what Augustine called rightly ordered loves. That the things that I value and worship and, and aspire to be inside my heart those shape who I am and who I am determines the way I live and the way I live shapes society. And the way I behave reorders the loves in my heart. And if I'm behaving in a way that starts to pull myself higher than it should be, this is this is what... Um, this is what Augustine called what, what ultimately is sin. It's love turned in on itself. It's, it's, when I, it's when self-love takes preeminence in my heart and mind. And so the reason, why, the reason why the Bible shows sex as powerful is because it's trying to say it has the ability to shape you, what's important, your decisions in life, who you connect to, who your friends are, if, if you get married, who, you're, who you choose as a marriage partner, which then, sh- th- then affects the way our societies look. So first of all, sex is powerful, and therefore it's formative. Number two, and this one, this one the church gets a lot of flack for. Sex is exclusive and therefore illustrative. The biblical vision for sex is that it has a context. And that context is is male and female lifelong marriage. And I could teach a whole message on that. But for now, that is, in summary, that's the context for, for biblical sex. That means that from God's perspective, sex is secondary. It's not primary because it fits in something else. Understanding the context comes before understanding sex. Sex is defined in this relational context, and when it's made primary or ultimate, it's then made to answer questions it's not designed or purposed to answer. Are you' tracking with me? But contrary to popular belief, the motivation for this exclusive context, it's not restriction or oppression. It's because Christianity acknowledges the power of sex, like we just talked about. It, this is what it believes then. It holds that covenant relationship is the only thing that can hold the nuclear power of sex. Remember the chisel of God that we talked about a few weeks ago? It's the self-giving, sacrificial, others-centered posture of love. This alone, in a committed, monogamous, lifelong relationship, that's the only thing that can hold it. Sex is, the Christian view of sex is that it's so powerful, it's so transformative in our life that it has to have something bigger than it and stronger than it to hold it and keep it where it's meant to be. That's, that's why it's exclusive. It isn't a low view of sex that considers it dirty or bad that causes the restriction. It's actually an elevated view of sex. It's not that we think it's dirty, therefore only, only people who are married can do it. So Get married. No, it's an elevated view. Tim Keller again. Paul is saying that you must never have physical oneness without whole life oneness. God meant physical oneness to be a bearer and a vehicle and a confirmation of whole life oneness. God's saying you must never get physically naked and vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable in your whole life. You must not become physically vulnerable and hold on to your independence. You you must become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, in every way, look at this word, committed. I know that's a bad word in modern culture, but God likes that word. You must give up your independence. And if you do that, if whole body giving is done in the context of whole life commitment, it will result in deep soul nurture, in deep personal transformation and completion. But I said the second point is about exclusive. Sex is exclusive, but it's therefore illustrative. Because this exclusivity is not just about holding the life-changing power of sex. It's also about illustrating our relationship with God. The reason God isn't into us having sex with people who aren't our spouses is because he's not into us having intimacy with gods who aren't the one true living God. Our exclusive sexual relationship is illustrative of our exclusive worship relationship. But again, this simply isn't based on repression. It's about our lining our lives with the true grain of reality. When we live in a way that recognizes God's exclusive rights to our worship, it gives room for the other parts of our lives to find their rightful place, which leads to life, Goodness, fruitfulness, and joy. Look at this. Philip Yancey reflects on this dynamic. He says this. I know I'm I'm quoting a lot. That's because they say it better than I do. Philip Yancey says this. The very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. So first of all, the Christian believes that sex is is powerful and therefore formative. It's exclusive and therefore it's illustrative. Number three, it's temporary and therefore witnessing. Do you know sex like marriage is temporary? I tell my wife all the time, I'm, this, is, this is one of the things I'm most mad about, mad with God about, <laughs> that marriage is temporary. Like I'm gonna have, I'm, I'm, I talk to him about it. Like, Lord, I am really upset with you about that reality But it is, it's temporary. And therefore, it witnesses to something that's not temporary, something that's eternal. Sex, like marriage is temporary. It will pass away with this world. But like the rest of Christian hope, that only means it will give way to something more glorious. This is good news for all of us. This is good news for those of you that have a fulfilling sex life, but this is good news for those of you that don't. This is the thing about the Christian worldview. It's it is not idealism. So Christianity is not idealism. It, it doesn't paint this ideal that all of us worship. It's a living relationship with God and it transforms us from the inside out. But one of the things it does is it has a whole lot of room for suffering. And the reason it has a whole lot of room for suffering is because it, it empowers us with, with knowing why and it, then it empowers us with knowing where it's all going. And so in our sexual lives, all of us have a bit of brokenness and a bit of hope. Some of us have a lot of brokenness or a lot of suffering. But the beautiful thing about that, whatever your, wherever your, whatever your relational status is, is whatever that is, is temporary. It will be here and gone before you know it, just like that. And it's going to give way to something Greater. David, um, I read this verse a few weeks ago, but it's just so been with me that I I wanted to read it again. David is getting on about this in Psalm 63, 3 when he says this, "My, my lips will glorify you, God, because your faithful love is better than life. David had eight wives when he wrote that. So just in case you think you'll be happier when you have sex with more people, he most likely had concubines as well. Just in case that you think other types of sexual experiences. David had experiences with the eternal and he had all the best sexual experiences that life could provide for him as a king and this was was his conclusion. The love I've tasted from you is better than life itself. Some of you go, no, I I can't see that. I I can't see that. And maybe that's because there's still more of the eternal love of God that you're, that you're called to experience. Maybe you've had a taste, but there's more. Jonathan Grant says this, he has an incredible book called Divine Sex. He says this, sexual intimacy in marriage gives us something like a momentary glimpse of our future ecstasy. It's a fleeting and shadowy foretaste of the social intimacy we'll experience in the age to come, even though sex itself will pass away. This new emphasis in the New Testament relativizes the importance of marriage and sexual intimacy because our future destiny so completely overwhelms all of our present sexual longing. He goes on to say, Like marriage, sex is not eternal. In sex within marriage, we express something essential about God's own relationships within the Trinity, as well as point to the age when we will participate in these relationships directly. Our experience of romantic love, sexual desire, and all forms of beauty is testimony to our ultimate desire for God. You have a longing inside of you that nothing in this world can meet. This is why for some in this room, you go from sexual encounter to sexual encounter to sexual encounter looking to satisfy that and you are left more empty. It's because at its core, by nature, sex is meant to be a witness to something more significant and more beautiful, more connective and more pleasurable. It's only a foretaste. temporary and therefore witnessing. And number four, the biblical vision is is that it's procreative and therefore fruitful. It's procreative and therefore fruitful. I'm not saying that all legitimate sexual relationships must be oriented towards procreation because that raises further questions for those that are infertile, beyond childbearing years, and, and so on and the like. But what I am saying is that we can't fully understand God's design in sexual relationships apart from procreation. It, it, it is seen as that's, that's part of the characteristics of that. And J- Jonathan Grant unpacks this beautifully in this statement. He says, sex within marriage at both the symbolic and practical levels is essentially an expression of our openness to new life beyond our exclusive relationships as a couple. So even if maybe, maybe you are a couple and, and you've, yearned, you've yearned for children, it doesn't mean that, that you're not having biblical sex if there aren't children. It's not the biblical vision of sex. What it means is that that very act is, is, a, is a declaration that we're open to new life. We see our lives as bigger than just us. This is not just about our own individual pleasure. Again, that's love turned in on itself. But this is about opening ourselves In a self-giving way, what Tim Keller said, a self-donation into somebody else that I recognize this world is bigger than my own pleasure. This world is bigger than my own life. This world is bigger than my own purposes or my own ends. But I I realize that there is something in even my very sexual life that testifies that fruitfulness and, and and the openness of God to other people is part of who we are, part of who I am. Ben, would you go ahead and come up? I wanna end in a, in a couple different ways. First of all, we have, we have prayer teams. You know, there's, there's so many different places. There's no way that I could address every unique situation in the room. Um, but the beautiful thing is it's, it's the Holy Spirit is here. He's here to meet you, he's here to speak with you And I just wanna talk about two things that I feel like that he wants to do in your life. Is that okay? Are you still with me? Has this been okay? The first one is this. I feel like God wants to give you rest. There is extreme sexual anxiety in the world around us. And it—and without even realizing it, we are caught up in that story. You can't, you can't walk down Market Street without being inundated with images that captivate your imagination on who you're supposed to be. Who is valuable to the world around you. Who is desirable to the world around you? I mean, it's it's constant, and I'm I'm not trying to be like ah, I'm scared of the world. I'm I'm just trying to to show you the reason why the anxiety is there. This is why this it's a constant thing. It's because we're inundated. It's 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 around. It's it is it's like a fish living in water. You don't he doesn't know he's in water. Just, just swim around. It's the C.S. Lewis illustration. He's if someone came to him and said, "Hey, you're in water," he would be like, "Huh? What's water?" It is everywhere around you. And what Jesus says to someone who's living in the middle of ceaseless anxiety is, "I will give you rest for your soul." I mean, deep rest. And and for some of you, that's shame over past sexual life that you've had. Some of you, it's guilt. It just plagues you. you. You wake up in the morning and there are memories. You have scenes. You remember things that you've done, things that people have done to you. And I'm not trying to trigger you. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying. This is, this is Jesus' invitation. I'll let him speak for himself. Matthew 11:28 28 through 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest take up my yoke and learn from from me because I am lowly and humble in heart you will find rest for your souls this is where the anxiety this is where the anxiety comes off in some some ways it's not even appropriate to, to lay that burden anywhere else because those answers won't satisfy but in the presence of God this is where it's appropriate You bring those burdens, you bring those yokes to him, he's gonna give you rest. The second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna give you restoration. You know, my favorite concepts in the New Testament is when Jesus says that he's coming, he's returning for a pure and spotless bride. Now, bride is a metaphor for the church. and I'm a church leader and I know you're a perfect church, but as soon as I decided to join Ramp Church, Ramp Church became a spotted bride, okay? (laughs) Because I'm, I'm, I'm human, I'm not perfect. But I've been around church long enough to know we are far from spotless. But Jesus says, when I return, the bride will be spotless. That's not a statement of condemnation towards our spots, it's a statement of hope. <laughs> this isn't just rest, this is not just like a spiritual spa. This is restoration. That we're able to go back into our life different. There's things in our lives that were previously broken that he's inviting us into the whole work of God, that his healing can penetrate the things in us, the rooms in our heart that we've, we've not even wanted to open for quite some time, maybe ever. He's a safe place. And the rest that He provides is not just ease; it's also restoration. It's not just soul comfort. There's also this restorative, healing work of God, where He's wanting us to, He's wanting us to live life to the full, not with no suffering, but in spite of suffering. Some of you, you're thinking, you remember about your addictions or your pains or failures. And I want to encourage you just bring those into the presence of the Lord today. We're going to sing together. I'm going to come up at the end and pray for you. But I just want to take a few minutes. we just stand on your feet all around this room? Orient your hearts towards the, towards the Holy Spirit. I just want you to connect with Him in this moment, and I want to. Before we close, I'll come and I want to pray over specifically. But right now, I just want you to bring all that you are before the Holy Spirit in this space. Let's sing. all over this room that one of the things the Lord wants us, every single person here to leave with is that you see the the Father's posture as leaning towards you. He's not ashamed by your story, by your past, by your brokenness. He's not repelled by you. But that he's leaning in and this is what I found seeing the Lord work in people's lives, he, they actually bail before he does. They bail on honesty, on coming clean, on I'm done dealing with my stuff, I'm done with me. And when they're ready to come back to deal with themselves again, he's sitting there waiting. <laughs> he's been there all along. He's not waiting on you to get your act cleaned up before He gets involved. He's involved to help you become the you that He's always seen you as. And we're leaving today with fresh invitation, a fresh power from the Holy Spirit to step into the next iteration, the next version of what that looks like in our life and to have our hearts filled with hope of who He's called us to be. And he turns graves into gardens today. Does anybody sense that? Does anybody see that over your life? And I just want to declare that over you in prayer. And then I want to invite you, any of those that need prayer, to come to our prayer teams. I just want to declare this over you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your life. That's not just a word over us, but it's an invitation. That as we come into relationship with you, as we look and embrace your truth, Father, that we're set free into the people that you've called us to be today. I thank you that your declaration over us is that the old has passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. That we are new creations in Christ. That we've been declared yours. We've been declared sons and daughters of God sons and daughters of the living God. And I thank you today that your re- redeeming love and redeeming life is flowing through every person here. Father, that they can sense the Spirit of God filling every, every thought, every motive, every decision. Father, that we are, we are teeming with the life of God as we leave today. And I pray, Father, that you are remaking us into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name. And if you believe it, just put your hands together to celebrate the life-giving love of God over our hearts and lives. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.